Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to another edition of Trying to Herd Cats, the philosophical podcast where we throw anonymous quotes at anonymous folks and see what rises to the top. So, not to lollygag, let's get to it. The first quote is, At times, I start to look outside and I take my bones out of these four walls. It has rained too much sand, and one wants to prove to himself that he's alive. For there are chains and chains, and you're helpless with so many shackles. It reminds me of uh, when I, I studied art history in college, and there was this um, art collector who had put together like a ridiculously amazing collection of art that ended up being extremely valuable over time and invested in artists that weren't, it wasn't predicted that they were going to become as valuable as they were. And somebody went back and interviewed the collector and they said, how did you decide what to buy? Because they just were like a crazy good art collector. Mm-hmm. And the person said that they stopped on pieces that made them feel unsettled. And, like, they would stay with those pieces. And those pieces ended up being things that they would buy that were, um, that ended up being of value. And so uh, I felt that way with that quote. Like, it, it just makes me feel unsettled. That in and of itself lets me know that there's something there. There's, like, layers to pick at to figure out what's going on there. But I think it does a really good job of capturing the, the feeling of what it's like to be isolated. And I've experienced exactly being isolated within four walls in my house a lot. I was at home like for years and didn't go outside almost at all and didn't see people unless they came to visit me. So I feel unsettled like with that reference. But as I've gotten out into the world and I've figured out how to be comfortable being around people again, um, I I totally see that there's so many people that they, they aren't officially agoraphobic and they're not in their houses, but they seem to still be suffering from a similar feeling of of feeling isolated even within relation to other people when you were trapped in the four walls so to speak was it self-imposed i had a chronic pain disease that made it really hard for me to go anywhere Mm -hmm. so it was imposed on me through my health as i've gotten healthier and healthier i've gotten out more and more but then i had to face the other things that were going on that I wasn't aware of because the the pain was an overrider to everything. So I was like, oh, well, I'm in pain, so I can't do anything. And then as I started to be in less pain, I was like, oh, well, I'm not as in much pain now, but I actually am afraid of people because I'm a really sensitive person and I find it overwhelming to be empathetic and feel all the emotions that are going on around me. So I have to figure out how to, to make sense of that and how to have some kind of armor or even intention of what I'm willing to engage with or allow into my own space so that I can feel safe and comfortable, you know, being out in the world. And I think that's probably where people feel isolated out in the greater world is where they haven't figured out a method with which to feel strong and confident and protected and safe in relation to a lot that's going on, you know, like, I took, I I babysit these two little girls and I took them to the McDonald's play area yesterday. That shouldn't be a problem, right? Like ice cream and, and climbing on, you know, 
play gym equipment with other little kids. It sounded like a good idea. (laughs) And the reality of it was really awkward and weird. And the other parents, the way that their grandparents and stuff, the other caregivers, the way they were engaging with their children was really awkward. And the way the kids were engaging with each other was really awkward. And then uh, the little one that I was babysitting ended up crying and getting stuck at the top of the play area and I had to crawl it was like those nightmares where you're trying to crawl through spaces that are too small for you but it was real (laughs) and I was crawling through all these weird little crevices and around and twisting myself and I was like wow can I fit up here but I had to go get her and she really just was not going to come down um and then she was fine once I met her in that space where she was afraid she went off on her own you know like I didn't even have to carry her back down or anything which I think is kind of related to the topic as well. but um. Well, yeah, I'll make it even more unrelated. You, you know, <laughs> on, on those jungle gym things at McDonald's, there's panels that you can undo to get up in there. Are there? Yeah, <laughs> I, I only know from experience, being a little fatter than you, so... <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that I'm thin enough to be able to fit through this right now. Yeah. Getting back down sucked because I, I, I was like, okay, I'm going to be brave and I'm going to go down the slide. There's yeah. like one of those enclosed slides. And I was like, all right, here I go. I hope I fit. And then I came down it and then it like bottomed out into this area that was, I was like really stuck. Like there were these, these um, ropes and stuff that I had to get past to get to the next level. And it really didn't go down very far. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, don't have my own panic attack. <laughs> No one's going to come save me if I start crying. <laughs> and then I got to the bottom and I kind of twisted my ankle on the way out, oh, which no. really bummed me And then I looked at it and, and her older sister, I was like, I, I couldn't figure out how to get out of that thing. And she's like, she's like, oh, because she's a little like voice of reason. Like she's a little like Zen Buddha, like, oh, it's like this. She's like, she's like, well, that thing on the right, it goes all the way down to the bottom. Like if you're at the very top, it'll just, you could just go right down to the bottom through that. And I was like, oh, of course. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, I should have asked her to come save me, actually. Anyway, yeah, we have our like we have our own internal shackles, and my theory on that is that like we all have difficult experiences at different points in our lives, and somebody else like hands you a bag of crap that you don't know what to do with, and if you don't get rid of it, it kind of becomes it, your you know shackles within inside of yourself. You know, if you're traumatized and you're still holding on to that. It's like how elephants, like they, they tie, apparently they tie them with a big chain and then they get used to the fact that they can't get away. And then you can tie them with a little tiny rope and they could actually pull it off and run into freedom, but they don't know that. So they don't try, so they don't do it. So their chain is more internal than it is external. Again, at times, I start to look outside and I take my bones out of these four walls. It has rained too much sand, and one wants to prove to himself that he's alive. For there are chains and chains, and you're helpless with so many shackles. I think a lot of people feel a need to, to, to feel alive. I think a man needs to feel like a man, and a woman needs to feel like a woman. And I think people that know how to accomplish that, to make people feel a certain way, have success like for instance just and this is probably a horrible horrible example but a womanizer has perfected the art of making a woman feel special and she knows she's one in a number you know what i'm saying she knows he's seeing other women but he makes her feel special when he's with her 
and like she's the only woman alive. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so, but it's because people want to feel a certain way. A man, I remember a guy that, that I know that his wife dominated him. Well, a man needs to be a man somewhere. If he can't be a man at home, he's going to be a, a man somewhere else. And so he would come to the church and be a tyrant. He was in, in charge of the building. And so, but, you know, he would just jump on people and, and just just hurt people. I mean, just anything. Just And I knew what it was because I understand the concept and understand the psychology of it. But his wife told him when to use the bathroom. I mean, he couldn't spend a dime without her say-so. But he needed to be a man somewhere, so he couldn't be a man somewhere. I think that's why a lot of times me and have affairs because, and I mean, it's a flaw, no, no doubt about it. It's a character flaw, or whatever. It's, it. I mean, it's because there are people that are not allowed to be a man in their home. They don't go out and play out on a wife. But I'm saying, uh, a prostitute, a lot of times is successful because she makes that man feel like a man for the time that that, mm -hmm. that she gets that money. You know what I'm saying? And those are hard, ain't they horrible examples. No, but, but of course it's all a facade because she's she's an actress. Sure. It's not true. It's like, oh, but, daddy, you are so good. Yeah, and he ain't. You know, he's not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but people need to feel a certain way. They need to feel right. alive. They need to feel wanted. They need to feel loved. I was talking about this on Facebook last night about because I was watching the uh, ninety uh, ninety day fiance. Before the 90 Days or something like that. Is that like a and reality show or something? It's a reality show where these people meet people online and they, they're overseas. And, and uh, they talk to them on computer. They talk to them on, on the phone and they never see pictures. Mm. They always The phone is always broke. The cameras on the phone don't work. Mm. And, and, uh, <laughs> and they'll talk to them. This guy, one guy talked to this woman for seven years. Oh, my goodness. And he's been to Russia four times to meet her. And she gives him an excuse and he believes it. And he wants... Her love so bad that he's believing. His friends tell him, man, she's not real. He hired a private detective after she didn't meet him for the fourth time. And he's making excuses. He's saying, uh, wow. well, I don't know why she wouldn't meet me, but I want to hear it from her. Yeah. And, and his friend is saying, man, she's not real. And the private detective, he hired a private detective. And the private detective said that she's got these accounts. These are fake accounts. Uh, basically, she doesn't exist, and he said he's wrong. She's getting money from him or something. Or? Yeah, okay. he spent over hundred thousand dollars. Ooh, man! And and uh, he, the private detective that he hired, told him that she's not real. Wow. That we have a lot of women that do that. I see what you're saying. Like he is so uh, he wants so love sad, so bad. He's so sad in his life, or he's so lacking that he he's willing to do this. Overlook all evidence. Mm -hmm. The psychology of it, the the uh, common sense of it, right. he overlooks all of that, and he's still saying that he wants her to tell him. You know, yeah. uh, that's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking because there, there's a couple of people. There's a black lady on there too. She's been seeing this guy for three years, and he's the love of her life, her soulmate. She's never seen him, and when she, when it came down to it that, that they were going to meet, that he uh, closed out his account and all that. It never, never existed. The thing about her, though, was that he never, he never asked her for a lot of money. She didn't give him a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But the other one, the lady, uh, she got money out of him, mm -hmm. and it, it, to talk to her cost money. So she probably had a, like a phone account where, if as long as he talked to her, kind of like a you know call Miss uh, Cleo or some mm -hmm. some kind of account where he said every time I talk to her, it costs 
it costs five dollars a minute or something like that. Uh, so he, she's probably getting money from him that way. Uh, right. This person, this man, probably Nigerian or something. <laughs> and, yeah. Not really, because <laughs> they they do it. I get those requests and friend requests and, and not really check them. And they'll come and say, "How you doing, Marvin?" I say, "I'm doing fine." If you heard about the government grant, I say, "No, Mister Nigeria, uh, <laughs> bye." <laughs> and most time they just they just stop trying. Times I start to look outside and I take my bones out of these four walls. It has rained too much sand, and one wants to prove to himself that he's alive. For there are chains and chains, and you're helpless with so many shackles. Like, what I find funny about this phrase is, I mean, this is sound terrible, but the personal pronouns. I mean, anytime you say it has rained, you almost like you figure out like, well, what what is it? Uh-huh. Right? What what is it in that sentence, right? And then the way this changes to to sand is so so kind of intriguing. And then one wants to prove himself that he's alive to himself that he's alive. And then you're so helpless with so many shackles. And what I didn't know if the person writing this, and that's such a interesting change there i mean this is maybe written by somebody who is has a profound intelligence but not much uh, learning or something Mm -hmm. but if this was intentional i mean it's such a really intriguing uh, shift where you go from one which is just so big and academic and universal to him Mm -hmm. right but instead of going then to me to something even more personal it goes to you which could just like the shackles are actually somebody else uh, that is causing the, the the lack of freedom for this person or causing the chains. So I didn't know that. I mean, that's a maybe a, a, a strange way uh, to look at it, but somebody put him in the heart four walls. And I, I was wondering if the shackle person was the person that put him in the four walls or not. Mm-hmm. That was my question about that. So that's actually a question, not like a... <laughs> I don't right. have... But that's something I never would have picked up on. But you're right. Now that I reread it, I realize that it does shift around so much. I almost, because I, of course, know the source of the quote, I sometimes wonder if it's not a little bit of madness at being imprisoned for a reason other than an actual crime. We see that, don't we see that desperation so often as, uh, well, I don't know, like uh, in Shawshank Redemption by Stephen King, it's actually the knowledge that he was innocent someone was innocent was the the key right that right. kept him sane but for others that seems to be what drives them crazy right that, yeah there's so much that, injustice the in that yeah. yeah 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 so I, I think it works different with different people but yeah no i'd be curious to kind of read this whole whole, whole poem or whole song um you know uh, we've heard of pounding sand but the idea of raining sand in the midst of in the midst of four walls is sort of sort of an intriguing intriguing image you know Again, at times, I start to look outside and I take my bones out of these four walls. It has rained too much sand, and one wants to prove to himself that he's alive. For there are chains and chains, and you're helpless with so many shackles. This guy's like too depressed for me. I would never read his material or whatever. I don't need that kind of negativity. Have you ever been like that? Because, I mean, sometimes we avoid things that we know are inside of ourselves. Um, No, I have a phrase that I use with my leadership team, and the phrase is detonate the bomb. And I'll explain what that means. 
Um, years ago, uh, in the eighties, ironically, Steven Seagal made a, made a movie, you know, where he's got a, somebody killed his wife or whatever. And he spends the whole movie trying to revenge this guy. Right. right. And he's finally cornered the guy in his mansion. The bad guy runs into a bathroom and, uh, closes the door and on the mirror in lipstick is written. The anticipation of death is worse than death itself. Huh. And that phrase has stuck with me my whole life. Like, it's true. So if I've got a looming bomb in the corner of this house, it's going to create all this anxiety. When is it going to explode? Is it going to hurt? Am I going to die? What's going to happen? I'm going to have to rebuild my house or whatever. And I make all these preparations and I have all this anxiety over whether or not this bomb is going to explode. So when I talk to my leadership team all the time, I say, go detonate the bomb. So when they have a parent, for example, or a customer that is mis misbehaving or they're worried maybe with a, um, a fellow employee that this employee is being passive aggressive or they're not sure what they mean. I'm like, stop. You're creating all this stress in your life over whether or not this bomb is going to blow. Go walk right over there right now and blow the bomb up. Could turn out that when you detonate this bomb, it's a little firecracker mm-hmm. and it's over. Could turn out it's the big explosion that you thought, but at least it's over. Right. When it's over, at least it's you're over, dead. and you can go out. Yeah, <laughs> you can go on with the rest of your life, right. knowing well I detonated this bomb instead of worrying when is this bomb going to go off. And so I've never existed with like I have this stuff internally. Well, I better not address it. But as soon as I recognize I've got something internally, I just go address it. Right. And sometimes it's painful to um, address that stuff, but um, I always come out the other side better for having done. Next quote, because I know you only through your writings, of all of my friends, you are the least unknown. It makes you consider what a friend is. And I want to have conversation and dialogue with my friends. Why do you think someone would say something like that? If they have a particular author that they really like, you know, or someone that they read constantly. The thing with writing, especially when you're writing emails, there's so much opportunity to edit. When you're talking with somebody, you have to be very cautious. You have to be considerate in the moment. And in fact, I'm actually talking slower you're, right now because I want yourself. to, yeah. It's not that I'm editing myself, but I want to make sure that the words that I'm using are the ones that I need. It's very difficult for me to find the words. It has been for a long time. So I will stop mid-sentence go through all the vocabulary I need, you know, find the word that expresses the point I'm trying to make. Because I don't want to be misconstrued. I don't have thesaurus.com in my head where I can look up, like, what's another way to say this? I think writing is, you can be eloquent. You can be smarter. You can have a better vocabulary. You can have correct pronunciation. And spelling, because you can hear all the misspellings when I speak. Sure, absolutely. Right. <laughs> um, I've had to write some some essays for applications, you know. And you, if I was talking to these people, they would understand. They would get the inflection. They would they would be able to see the passion in my face. And instead, I have to find a way to convey that drive and excitement through words that are just flat on a page or on a screen. Or, so. Um, I guess I don't agree with the statement because you can invent and you have to. A lot of times you have to invent. If I 
I can only write emails the way I speak to like two or three people. You know, it's fast, it's mindless, um, it's goofy. Those are people I'd rather talk to on the phone. Do you think, because you said you have some trouble talking sometimes, mm -hmm. that when you write a letter you actually are getting your truer thoughts out that you might be impeded by your mouth? I feel like so much communication is more than the words. I can craft my message if I'm writing, but I can't, I can't be convinced that the person on the other end is actually going to understand me. If I'm with somebody and I'm making hand gestures, if I'm making faces, mm -hmm. if I'm, you know, intense, mm -hmm. then they're going to understand me even if I say nothing mm -hmm. because, because the expression of my body is going to help right. that. I don't understand how people who don't know each other can have a text message relationship. I'm so glad I met Josh before that was a thing. Mm -hmm. Now it's fantastic because we use it for grocery lists. Do you need me to pick anything up on the way home? Yes, here's my list of stuff. We'll send each other sweet love notes during the day. But I can't do that with somebody I don't know. Like I, well, not just the love notes and the grocery list, yeah, obviously. Yeah, because I don't think your husband would care for right. that. Right, but even if I'm sending some a text message to my mom, I have to be careful about the wording. I can't abbreviate. Um, I'll still have to call her a lot of times and be like... Clarify. Yeah. I honestly, I don't know how these kids these days, I don't know how they're going to survive in the world because they're not learning how to communicate. We have to shake them up a little bit. I don't know how, but my nephew is nine and he and I had the best day in August. It was his birthday. He wanted to come see me for his birthday. We, just the two of us, we spent five or six hours we went to a cafe. He called it a calf. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we went to a cafe. We went to several galleries. We had good conversation. He doesn't have a phone yet. He uh, just got his first email account. And I'm terrified. Oh, wow. Because we're sending little notes back. But I'll send him a letter and I'll get like two sentences back. Okay. But he can engage on a one-on-one. -on -one. Right. So I need to call instead of email. I need to help him develop. Again, because I know you only through your writings, of all of my friends, you are the least unknown. It's like celebrities don't even seem like celebrities anymore. You know, like the uh, like one of my favorite musicians forever, this uh, Adam Durrett singer from the Counting Crows. You know, it's like I I used to just worship this guy. I thought he was the coolest culmination of '90s culture and music and everything that there ever was. And uh, probably is a combination of growing up and you know, finding something more worthy to worship, but at the same time, you know, it's, guy's got a Facebook account, see him taking pictures of what he's about to eat, and, you know, <laughs> him asleep on a bus, and, you know, I actually, I finally got a chance to meet him um, a couple of years ago. And did you give him crap about his Facebook account? No, I didn't, you know, I just said, dude, it's awesome, I've waited 10 years. You should say, every Facebook post should be as awesome as your lyrics. I know, man, that would be great, but it's, it's not to be. Um, but no, really, I just, I told him, I was like, I've, I've been waiting to get a picture with you for, you know, 10, 15 years, how, whatever I said. I've been, mm -hmm. been listening to them since I was 11, so it's been almost 20 years. But uh, it just, it, you know, if I had had that experience to meet him and talk to him and get a picture with him, get his autograph, 
five years before, I would have like just been beside myself. Mm -hmm. But you know, at this point, aside from the physical photos I got, that whole experience is almost forgettable because it's you know it used to be something you would wait and you would see a magazine article about your your favorite band, your favorite mm -hmm. musician. You might mm -hmm. get something like that once or twice a year. Uh, maybe never, depending on how obscure the band is. Uh, but now you can just see what these people are doing all day, every day. And it becomes a lot less interesting because of the saturation the social social media has put out there. You know, that's that's one thing that I always I, I idolized about that band is um, they, their lyrics were just so thought-provoking and and granted, you know, it's, uh, that's the older you get and you start to see through some of the BS, you know, some mm -hmm. of it was just, uh, it just sounded really good, but it didn't mean anything. Uh -huh. Like a new song, Sullivan Street, they wrote, used to sound like the, it pisses my wife off to this day. She loves the band almost as much as I do now. It's, it just sounds like this really deep song and just love loss and all this crap. And, you know, I heard Adam Duritz, we were at, a con at, at the Ryman concert. He was telling everybody what the meaning of the song was. And it turns out he was just bummed that he couldn't spend the night at his girlfriend's house because her mom was religious and wouldn't let him hang out. And he was always having to drive down Sullivan Street, which took forever. And that was the whole meaning of the song. He was just mad because he couldn't spend the night at his girlfriend's house. And that was it. So uh, and my wife, like every time we, if we're playing the CD or, or if they played at a concert, she's just like, get over it, Adam. It's a drive. <laughs> so what? You didn't get to sleep with your girlfriend because her mom's Catholic. Okay, whoop-de-doo. You know? wow. It's just, it's funny. Again, because I know you only through your writings, of all of my friends, you are the least unknown. What that reminds me of, I was speaking at Dragon Con a couple years ago, and a young woman came up. She was, I would say, early 20s. She told me that when she was several years younger, she had had meningitis, and she'd been very, very ill. While she was ill, she and her father had been working through the cryptography tutorial on my website. Mm -hmm. And it was what she did to kind of pass the time. And she said she just wanted to come up to me and say thank you. And it was so touching. Yeah. Just that, that moment of connection and also an awareness that the things that I write may be having an effect that I don't know. I, I never met this girl. I didn't write this with the idea that, oh, yeah, a young girl who's sick is going right. to be spending her time going through these tutorials. But it is a reminder that the things we do can have a far-reaching impact. Again, because I know you only through your writings, of all of my friends, you are the least unknown. My sons, as I mentioned earlier, both brilliant students, different students. My older son, the hardworking, everything he can do, child if uh, again like my wife if it takes two hours to learn it spends four hours on it does it twice you know takes every practice test three times my younger son okay he's like me except he managed to make A's and be like me he does the minimum you know never brought a book home from school in four years of high school but when he was a senior in high school he's a very good writer and he wrote his senior portfolio the English teachers graded his portfolio and it came out to be a proficient, which is the second highest level. 
not distinguished. And I didn't understand that because his particular English teacher that he had was giving him distinguished scores on everything he turned in. So if you take five pieces that are distinguished and you put them together, they ought to be distinguished. The two teachers who graded it were not his teacher. They did not view it as distinguished. And so I asked if I could see a copy of it as a concerned parent. Uh And, you know, a little inside because I'm in the building. So the principal got me a copy of it and I read through it. I discovered many things about my son in reading through it that I didn't know. And I think that goes to the point of the question. In life, in direct interaction with somebody, we hide a lot of things. When you're writing intentionally, you're much more honest. And so even though you might know me as a person, you don't know my insides, but those those true writers, those people who are pouring themselves in their writing, they're laying it all out there when they do that. So you're actually seeing the inner person. When you read this from your son, as a parent, did it kind of hurt you a little bit that you didn't know this? At that point, that writing, it wasn't about personal issues as much as it was about activities. The one piece that hit me the most, he wrote about the sports he had participated in in high school. And he was a good athlete as well as a good student. And he was on the academic team. So swimming was his sport. Up until three years ago, he was considered the best male swimmer in Hopkins County ever. He's no longer that category. There's now two that have been better than him. He described the three sports he did in high school. So he, he described his sports and he talked about his feelings about them. And of course, I would think, because I was never a star athlete, I would think your favorite sport would be the one where you were a star. Everybody looks up at you. Everybody says, oh, look, there's there's Sean. He's he's the best swimmer. He's going to win the race for us. He's going he's gonna to be a high point for the meet. In reading, what I discovered was his least favorite sport, by the time he was a senior in high school, was swimming. His favorite sport was the one he was mediocre at, which was tennis. Did he say why? Yes. In swimming, you know, it was fun to beat everybody, especially when he was a little kid beating everybody. You know, when he was an eight-year-old beating the kids in the 12-year-old age group, that was cool. But because he became so good, the pressure kept building. He could never relax because when he got up on the starting blocks, everybody expected Sean was going to win. If it was in a relay and he was swimming the last leg, he was supposed to catch the team up no matter how far behind they were. If he's the first leg, he's supposed to put the team so far ahead that nobody can catch him because that's what he's supposed to do. By senior year, there was so much pressure. In tennis, he was the eighth or ninth man on the team, which meant he only played doubles a few times, and a couple of times he played singles matches when somebody didn't show up. So nobody had great expectations for him. Nobody, nobody paid any attention. Nobody, you know, I, I wouldn't watch, but you know, nobody expected Sean to be the star. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot less pressure in that. Cross country was just physical fitness. Now, the interesting thing for that is, of those three, which does he still do now at age 29? He runs, because you can run anywhere. Sean has lived in New York City now seven years, six years. He had a breakup that, you know, because you're not there, you don't know how it affected him, but he started writing a blog. 
about his breakup. And it was just interesting to see the passion in the blog that I never saw in my son, I've never seen in my son in personal interactions. You know, he basically shrugs everything off as no big deal. Mm -hmm. So again, I think in writing, a lot of people are more able to express their feelings than they could ever do in personal interaction because really we're taught not to in personal interactions. You say to somebody you meet on the street, you haven't seen them all, hi Jim, how are you doing? You really don't want to know, do you? You don't really want Jim to launch into a story of how he's doing. Right. And Jim won't do it. Jim will just say, oh, doing fine. How are the kids? Oh, they're great. They're not going to tell you. Well, it's it's really been rough. They don't tell you the truth in person. Maybe not here, but the deeper south you go, they do. The deep <laughs> south, they tell you everything. Yeah, they give you dissertations. <laughs> More than you want to know. Well, my youngest got scabies, and yeah. uh, I've got well, scurvy. Let me tell you. Let me show you this spot on my yeah. leg. <laughs> Last quote, every day we rise with the world, but at the most unlikely times, there's a bunch of guys who work against your liberty, who grab your most sincere poem and indict you. You know, about the Holy Bible, the demon tempted Jesus through using the word of God. Yeah, I think that's very, very difficult to Christian if the people, if the demon use the word of God to tempt Christian, that's very, very easy to misunderstand the God's real Intention. real meaning. Yeah, it's it's very powerful. We had this problem here in the West where someone will interpret right. uh, some scripture for their own uses or their own purpose and yeah. to control people or yes, you name it. Someone will twist it, we say. So you you feel that the devil was twisting God's words to tempt Jesus. Right, because Jesus knows very well of the word of God. Jesus won. But for most of Chinese people, for Chinese Christians, everywhere is, you know, the cults. Mm-hmm. I have met two guys preached another different gospel to me and use the word of God to me. But I quickly pick up some important part, important word from Bible to reject. But I think if these guys preached to the people who just uh, believe the Jesus, so it, I think they were very, very easy to control by them. And also in China, especially in Shanghai, it's very, very easy to meet the cults. A few days ago, I, I took the subway to office, mm-hmm. and it's very crowded. A girl stand by me. We are very close. She was studying the Word of God on her notebook. So I guess she must be Christian. I asked her, are you Christian? And she said, yes. And so she quickly preached to me the, uh-huh. the belief of her Called, she thinks the goddess female. That's stupid. I think. <laughs> I don't know if you know. Really, does does God does he go to the bathroom this way or that way? Yeah, she firstly preached the 
pass over to me. So I asked her, why not preach me Jesus Christ and his cross? And she thinks the people only use, only through Passover can redeemed, can get the salvation. Huh, that's interesting. This kind of cult very, very big in Shanghai. Again, every day we rise with the world, but at the most unlikely times, there's a bunch of guys who work against your liberty, who grab your most sincere poem and indict you. It reminds me of how good I am at putting my foot in my own mouth, because sometimes like, my intentions are really great, but um, the actual outcome ends up not being so good. The pastor at my Unitarian Church had a really good sermon about that once, where she said that was actually the theme she was grappling with throughout her entire career thus far is that people will have good intentions, and then what is the outcome of it? The outcome has to, has to actually be acknowledged and assessed, and if the outcome is, if it doesn't match your intentions, you have to go back to the intentions and figure out what to do instead. And I feel like it happens all the time. It happens like in conversations, even with my best friends, you know, where I can tell that the thing I just said kind of like offended or irritated them, it doesn't mean that they didn't need to hear it, but if they're not open to listening and doing something with it at the moment, then it's useless. You know? Right. Well, I mean, talk about politically and historically. I mean, the sure. the pages are just littered with you know, the millions of dead bodies that came about because of good intentions. Absolutely. And the inability to adapt or change our mind or admit, I think we're wrong on this. And it links to parenting. That's a hard one where like, you know, your intention is obviously to be the best parent that you can be. I would I would say even the most super, super messed up parents, if you talk to them, they would theoretically say that, yeah, that was their plan. Right. <laughs> um, but then, you know, there's life. There's reality of doing the thing that you said you were going to do. And then you have moments where you're not at your best and they're not at their best and things aren't lining up. So I think that really strong person, what I'm fascinated by with a person is if they're able to recognize that that is happening, that, that there's a disconnect, that their intentions are not coming to fruition and that they actually reassess the situation and, and do differently in the situation in order to really achieve what they were trying to achieve, you know, because I think a lot of people when that happens, they, they give up too easily, you know, and they're like, well, I tried. So I've been working really hard on my tendency and I'll go ahead and say, it, I'm actually acknowledging at this point that it's an addiction to codependency, which is where you like engage with everybody else's business as a way to avoid your own business <laughs> sure. and uh, I've been going to meetings because there are co there are codependency meetings the room next to me at the center that I go to is an uh, Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in Spanish <laughs> and you attend that one as well no, I haven't, but, but I appreciate the fact that they don't distract me because even though I can hear them, I have no idea what they're talking about. Okay. But I assume they're talking about all the same stuff because all the addiction meetings are all the same stuff. It's all the, like, I have a pattern that isn't working, mm -hmm. and I have to reassess what to do differently in order to live a better life because it's not working. And uh, something that happens in codependency, which I think is hilarious, is... Uh, and I see it, you know, the more people I know through going to groups, the more I connect and I'm like, okay, it's not just me. I'm not the only one <laughs> who's like this. There's an intention 
of being really nice and kind and giving. And then I, I think that in my experience, I'll overgive or I'll overcompensate by overgiving and oversharing and being overly loyal, like more than has been earned by the person that I'm that I'm engaging with. And then there's then there's like a wall, and this is where like uh, passive aggressive stuff comes up, where there's a wall that's hit where it's like, hey, screw you, I was being nice and you suck. <laughs> <laughs> and as I'm learning to find balance in it, I'm like, oh well, I don't need to overgive until I hit a wall. I'm I can actually set healthy boundaries that keep me from ever getting there. Because that was the point. The point is to be help, helpful to the universe. It's not to um, be perceived as being a super nice, generous, amazing person, and then every once in a while gets like ridiculously angry for no apparent reason and thinks everybody sucks. Like mm-hmm. that's not actually the life I want to be living. <laughs> as it turns out. Again. Every day we rise with the world, but at the most unlikely times, there's a bunch of guys who work against your liberty, who grab your most sincere poem and indict you. That is, of course, a voice of somebody who lives in or did experience that kind of persecution directly. Those are conditions of life which every society, including our own, has. I mean, we... I certainly have experienced moments in which I realized that my own convictions as an anti-totalitarian individual will get me the disfavor of those who smugly defend totalitarian causes, believing them to be just and so forth, and have no problem in persecuting those who see it otherwise. But that's a price you pay. I mean, you can't be authentic without paying that price. One of my favorite modern thinkers was uh, Nicholas Berdyaev, a great Russian Christian existentialist thinker, who said the truth is always dangerous. If you're getting into trouble, it's because it's a truth that others don't want you to espouse or articulate or at least expose people to. And an alternative view. And the level in which a society makes that danger life threatening, truly destructive or not, is what determines societies that are, you know, social systems that may or may not be unfair, but are not cruel and vicious and are open to change from, as opposed to others, which, you know, next thing you know, the state security apparatus is tearing down your door and dragging you to a, a concentration camp. Societies will always put up a resistance to things that challenge their cherished values, but fair societies, modern societies, free societies are open to the possibility that, hey, this, that they may have a point, this person may be right. And that's how we have produced changes in our society. That doesn't mean that the changes were, were always welcome. We tackled racism, sexism, uh, and other forms of social discrimination directly. And yes, the people who were at the front of that paid a price, but eventually that won. In other societies, it doesn't win. It gets crushed and destroyed. And sometimes it's something as simple as a poem. In fact, I remember reading back when, you know, the... uh, 
uh, back when there was still, you know, communism in Eastern Europe, that, that there were actually poets and intellectuals who had fled to, you know, Soviet, Czechoslovakia, you know, Russian controlled Czechoslovakia or Hungary or Poland, whatever, and had come to the West, to Paris or Frankfurt or New York or whatever. And now they were free to write and publish, but then they, some of them actually said, but you know, back then we wrote a poem in, in Prague or in Budapest and it could get you into trouble. And there was just something exciting about that. <laughs> they, they kind of yearned for that martyrdom uh, that, that a, a sonnet could bring you. Whereas, you know, yes, in, in, in the West, you could write whatever you felt like and nobody really cared. You know, oh, that's nice. So you want to, you, you espouse this or you espouse that. No, that's nice. Okay, next. You know, people are just going about their business and not really... Like in the famous painting of um, Landscape of the Fall of Icarus by Peter Bruegel the Elder, where Icarus is plunging into the sea and the plowman is plowing along, the fisherman is fishing, the, the shepherd is doing his thing, and nobody really cares if this kid with the wings falling out of the sky and drowning. You know? Okay, so he's drowning. We have to confront that in free societies. You may not be able to, to write a dangerous poem because poems are just inherently not dangerous no matter what you're saying whereas in in totalitarian societies a poem about i don't know a loaf of bread could get you into trouble because it isn't politically uh engaged in the right way and as horrible as the latter sounds it also produces a sense of heroism on the part of the writer who can taunt, you know, who can fight the gods, the evil gods, with a poem. Again, every day we rise with the world, but at the most unlikely times, there's a bunch of guys who work against your liberty, who grab your most sincere poem and indict you. What it sounds like he's saying is that there's this honesty in uh, in, in his in his poem, right? And what he's writing, like this is super raw nature of it. And when he's at his rawest and most vulnerable, here come the people that you know are sort of lying in wait for you, and they're going to exploit you at your weakest, and take this beautiful thing where you're, you've poured your heart out into it and actually use it against you, which makes you want to like guard yourself all the more and God, if that isn't the reality of life, (laughs) I mean, maybe I'm just jaded, but I've experienced that. Like when I was uh, beginning to study work through my thinking in theology and philosophy, I I really didn't understand a lot about the Bible and Christianity and all that stuff. And once I got into it, I tripped across this book by Gregory Boyd called the God of the possible. And I started to read his explanation of how he sees reality and how he sees the Bible and how he sees Christianity. And I started just rocking my world because for the first time I read something that I thought, damn, that is exactly how I feel the world is. And, and this guy just articulated it with a whole system of thought. And I went down this rabbit trail of digging into his position, which is open theism. And the more I spent time reading about that, the more I became convinced that, man, something here is real and good. I started posting about it on Facebook, sharing my thoughts in the church that I was at at the time. 
this pastor who was a, a Calvinist, he read my posts and basically just lit me up on Facebook in front of the rest of my church and then went to the board and I was teaching Sunday school um, for like fifth and sixth grade boys every Sunday for like a year. And he had me like removed from teaching the boys because he said I was a heretic. So like, you know, here I am honestly trying to seek God, trying to understand this stuff and, and diving in deep and hear this guy sort of just slays me and then, and then, and then removes me uh, when I'm trying to serve the kingdom of God. It, it, it was like being exploited when you, you're here, here I am sharing my most deep kind of heart felt thoughts on this new theology I'm studying and just laying it out there for the world to see. And then somebody just takes it and sets it on fire. And the source of the quotes at times I start to look outside and I take my bones out of these four walls. It has rained too much sand, and one wants to prove to himself that he's alive. For there are chains and chains, and you're helpless with so many shackles. It is by Angel Quadra, who was part of an underground group of writers critical of Fidel Castro's communist dictatorship, and was sentenced to 15 years for, quote, conspiracy. Once celebrated as the pride of Cuban literature, the socialist sought to erase Quadra from the collective memory of his people. After his release in the early 1980s, Quadra went to live in Miami, joining the flourishing Cuban exile literature scene there, and in 1990 was given special recognition for his poetry by Czechoslovakian President Vaclav Havel, the latter himself also having been imprisoned by his country's communist regime. The next quote? Because I know you... Only through your writings, of all of my friends, you are the least unknown. Is by Juana Rosapita, and is taken from a series of letters between she and the poet I just mentioned, Angel Quadra, while the latter was in prison. These works are part of a collection of quadras called The Poet in Socialist Cuba. Also, Mrs. Pita was a guest back on In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 129, where she shared some of her poetry and talked about her own life story. And the last quote, Every day we rise with the world, but at the most unlikely times, there's a bunch of guys who work against your liberty, who grab your most sincere poem and indict you. Was by Herberto Padilla, also a Cuban poet imprisoned by the Castro regime. Are you sensing a theme here? Who eventually, after his release, also came to live and flourish in the United States. We used some of Padilla's other works for a whole episode of Trying to Herd Cats, back on In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 174. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs) 